Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I am Carlos Colazzo, joining you as usual. Today, Ben is not here, uh, at least for this intro. Today, we've got a little bit of a different podcast. This week, we had a few technical difficulties, although we had an interview planned for this week's episode in the first place, so I think you guys are still going to enjoy this episode. Um, we managed to work around those issues for our interview with with a very special guest we have on this episode of the podcast, and that's Hudson Belinsky, a former baseball American himself, former scout with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Hudson is really one of the people who is probably most responsible for for my job and my role at Baseball America right now. I worked with him initially when I started at Baseball America back in 2017. Hudson was a, a writer with Baseball America from 2015 through 2017. He led draft coverage at the site for three years, then moved on to being an area scout for the Diamondbacks. He did that for five years, was the signing scout for Drew Jones last year when they selected him number two overall in the draft, the top player on our board a year ago. And now he is uh, both coaching and advising players uh, with his own agency now, Cares Sports Management. That's what he's up to. Um, but me and Ben had a really good conversation with Hudson all about scouting, how he got into the game, his background with Baseball America, what he learned when he joined the team side, um, how he developed as a scout, what are some of the things that maybe from the outside looking in, we either undervalue or overvalue about players, areas that maybe we don't think about at all, uh, that maybe we should think about moving forward just in terms of how we talk about players, how we cover players and evaluate players. We We talked a lot about the current um, travel ball environment and and how that's changed over the years and and how maybe the incentives always aren't lined up perfectly for for player health and and making the most of what players can be um, a few years down the line. We talked about some scouting stories he had. It was a really fun conversation. Uh, both Ben and I got a lot from that. I hope you guys do as well. Again, sorry that we don't have the typical intro here. Uh, we'll hopefully figure out these technical issues that we are running into. Um, and we also had to kind of do this a little bit earlier in the week than we typically would. Uh, so I think usually we would have figured out what was going on and, and made the podcast happen like normal. But this week, uh, at least by the time you're listening to this, I'll be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, watching a, a really exciting series between LSU and Tennessee, seeing a few of the top prospects on our 2023 draft board, Dylan Cruz, Paul Skeens, Chase Dolander. So there's a lot of stuff um, that as you're listening to this, probably I'm, I'm out of the field watching. So grateful for that. Uh, again, apologies for a slightly different format for the podcast, but again, the the bulk of this episode was always going to be the Hudson Belinsky interview, uh, and we had a lot of fun talking with Hudson. So again, hope you guys enjoy it. Um, for Ben, who is not here with us today, I'm Carlos. Enjoy this interview, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, excited to have you on the podcast, Hudson. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. You obviously... We're the signing scout for for Drew Jones that we want to get into that story and, and what that was like. But we'll have given you a little bit of an introduction prior to this actual interview right here. But I just want to give you a minute, Hudson, to, to talk a little bit about your baseball background because it's a very long one. You've done a lot of different things. You've been on the media side. You've been on the team side. Now you're on the agency side. So I feel like you've got a lot of expertise to bring to the podcast from a lot of different areas, but if you want to tell the listeners just a little bit about your background, how you got to where you're at right now, um, we'd love to hear that. For sure. It's good to see you guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, this is just really cool to see what you guys have done with covering the game. Um, when I was at BA, we weren't even talking about, you know, 
underclassmen at all. Uh, we weren't really connecting the international stuff to the pro stuff or to the amateur stuff. And I think it's really cool to just see what you guys do. I'm a frequent listener. Um, so for me, it's yeah, my background. Yeah. To, to answer that, like, of course, probably most people listening to this know me. If they know me, they know me from my time at Baseball America. Uh, I covered the draft for three cycles there. Um, pounded the pavement, watched the the high school showcase circuit that you're on now, Carlos. Um, watched a lot of professional baseball. I kind of think of uh, my time at Baseball America as my baseball graduate school, um, where you just kind of you have to grind for a while and you'd learn a lot really quickly. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of my, my most well-known, I guess, position. Uh, after that, um, you know, I did, I had some previous experiences obviously to get to the stage of, uh, working at BA, but, um, after that, I, I took a job working for the Diamondbacks, uh, in Georgia as an area scout, uh, did that for five draft cycles. Um, had a great experience, learned a lot, and uh, now I'm I'm involved in a couple of different things, uh, opening a facility and helping organize a travel baseball team, and then kind of helping build up a small boutique agency as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I love the game of baseball. For me, I, it didn't start as a player. Um, Carlos has seen me try to throw the baseball before in the parking lot at the <laughs> old Baseball America office. So. It wasn't pretty. Still not pretty. It's it's better. I'll tell you that it's better now that I do actually work with some players uh, and some teams. And I can hit a fungo at least. At least at least I think I can hit a fungo. <laughs> but um, yeah. So I just I have like you said I have a very bunch of different experiences in the game. Uh, I love watching amateur baseball specifically. Um, I'm just really excited to talk to you guys. I think like. One of the things uh, that I thought about when you asked me to come on is just you guys keep a very conversational podcast and it, it feels like it's just two guys who love baseball who are chatting. Right. And you have a bunch of information and insights and industry wisdom that's mixed into there, which I think like as you kind of get further away from our baseball circle and you, you run into just the casual fan of the game uh, that you can see kind of how they really appreciate uh hearing about this type of stuff so um i'm excited to just talk baseball and unpack whatever comes out here yeah yeah well that's always people ask me like what is your favorite part about the job at baseball america and i always just say i mean i one of my favorite things is just having an excuse to pick up the phone and talk baseball with at least anybody who's willing to talk to me whether it's an area scout or a scouting director, international scouting director, farm director, GM, like, you know, especially working at BA, people are kind enough to, you know, pretty consistently return our, our calls. And, um, you know, once when, when you're talking with somebody, you know, hitting coordinator, pitching coordinator, whoever it is, whether it's talking about specific players and like really diving in deep on them or just talking like theory, philosophy, anything to do with baseball. Like, you know, people in baseball love talking about <laughs> baseball. So I don't know if that was like your experience too at, at BA or, or kind of how that changed when you became 
an area scout too. Like, I don't know if other it's, it's weird, right? Cause you're like on the one hand, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you're talking to a whole bunch of different people as far as, you know, players you're trying to get to know coaches trying to pick their brains for information. Uh, but then also other scouts in your area who I'm sure you're seeing all the time and you got, 29 other guys who you're competing with. So I'm sure they're probably trying to keep inform certain information close to the vest, but at the same time, like, you know, they love talking baseball too. So I don't know what that kind of experience was like for you, both, both when you were here at, at BA and then when you, you know, became an, an area scout. Yeah. Um, I think like there's there. And even as I, when I first broke in at BA, I kind of, I viewed like major league scouts as like, Ooh, they're, you know, those are those like people who, who just view the game differently and they, you have to be careful about going to talk to them. They'll say something, see something or say something that you're just like, wow. Right. And that's true. Like it does happen. There are a lot of really like incredible things that you learn from people just at the field. Uh, but they're just people, right? Like scouts are just, people ultimately um and i think that uh in my time at ba like just connecting with people it's like yeah like we're we may be sitting at a field with 10 scouting directors right but like there we all have various interests in life right and we just kind of connect and talk and like we're literally the only people we know at this random high school game right now most of the time like in the middle of somewhere right so like i think when you're you are scouting you know out and even in at ba is different than scouting right you're still out but you're you have people who are kind of sometimes they're willing to share information with you right and you develop a connection and like they respect what you guys do and what we what i did at ba right and they ultimately care about making sure that the truth is out there right there are people like that and then there are a lot of people who are skeptical of you, you know, when you show up to a field and just because they've been burned or they have a perception of media, generally speaking, um, where they don't really want to even be friendly with you. Right. I'm sure you guys have experienced that. Um, you know, they're kind of weary of being seen around you sometimes, like in the media. Um, so I, I feel like when I got into scouting, I, I felt a little bit of that. I guess rust shake off. Um, you're more just like, you're all trying to do the same thing. The 30 area scouts that, that are in the same area, right. You're, you're literally spending more time with those people than your family. You know, uh, you sometimes you don't see them for three or four days, but you, you run into them again, you know, very quickly. And I didn't have that large of a geographic area. So, uh, I mean, I wasn't, you know, like the overlap that I had with my my fellow area scouts was pretty consistent. Um, you don't necessarily ever sit and like nobody ever pulls out their list and says, this is who I've got here and there. Right. Years afterwards or after the draft, we do and say like, really, mm -hmm. you like that guy? Like, you know, you break it down a little bit more. Um, but ultimately, there's when you take like those top of the draft names, right? Like that you guys like Ben, you've been scouting twenty fives and sixes already, probably. Like when you take those names, like we all know who they are. When the draft cycle rolls around, we've known who they are for three years. Like 
in, and in most cases it's like three years or five years or seven years like if they're a college guy so like there's not a lot of secrets when, like, when you show up to go watch a first round pick like we're all there yeah you're just trying to figure out where you're placing him relative to the other prospects in your team's system you know or your process right so like signaling like interest or like i could sit there and say yeah every player i'm here watching like every single time i'm at the field with scouts like yeah this guy's really good he is he's really good like that's my opinion he's really good that doesn't tell anyone like where you value him relative to other players right and then strategically like your team's going to pick the player that they have the most interest in so like it's it's not just necessarily like uh tipping hands of interest in one player or another like the guy who goes first overall in every draft every team wants to see him and scout him and you know has a has some process for evaluating him right so i think like just understanding that we're all in that same hunt and we are competing but i think the way i looked at competing was let's try to be the most informed that we can let's try to make really good relationships with coaches and players and their families you know, so that we have, because we are competing in that way, like with the other teams, like it's, it's an information war ultimately more so than uh, finding out who's on who, or, you know, we want to make sure that we have the best information in scouting. Like, and so you hustle to try, just try to make sure your team's at a competitive advantage from that perspective, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm curious too, what you think, like, because it does seem like a lot of what you're talking about that is valuable for you on the scouting side is, is also valuable for us here at baseball America. Obviously we're trying to get all the best information we can as well. But one of the specific areas I was curious about your perspective on is going from a position where at baseball America, we're covering the top 500 players in the draft. You have a very broad view of the class, like kind of a bird's eye view of the class going from that to uh, being an area scout where maybe you're not seeing and granted you, you're still at a bunch of national events. So you get, you get pictures of players in, in different areas, obviously, but going from covering a draft and, and talking about 500 players and, and to do that 500 list, you're obviously talking about 750, like a thousand total players that, that don't have eventually make the list, but what are the challenges or the differences in going from that process that we use here at baseball America to going to like an area scout process where you're getting significantly deeper on each player that you see in, in terms of the depth of your reports, uh, in terms of the looks you get on those players in person, how big of a, a transition period did you have when you initially started? And also maybe it was probably a little bit easier for you because you did have some experience as an associate scout. I think it was the raise before you, you started with baseball America at all. So probably the familiarity familiarity helps, but what's kind of the, the difference in, in those two jobs and those two perspectives on the players? Yeah, good question. Um, I think like the most immediate thing that stands out to me is <clears throat> like when you run along the circuit, right? Like uh, you don't need to use specific guys in this class, but like if you go to the PG National and uh, PDP League and East Coast Pro, area codes the, these high level travel events like uh the pbr big the big events they put on right if you go to those and you go just to those right and you like pick the guy out who had the most hits and like 
hit 95 plus the most times, like, yeah, he's probably pretty good. Like it's, it's not that hard, right? Like the guy who's at the best events, who's the best player, like that fits up here. And the guy who doesn't perform as well, fits down here. Like it's the, the players are kind of put in front of you and then you mix them together. And then there are some names that come from different places, but it's like college baseball. The, the guy who leads the league in it leaves the Cape in hitting and then like hits 400 in the SEC with a bunch of home runs. And that's it. like, and you can see on Twitter, he's hitting the ball 117 miles an hour and it's a beautiful swing and you can pull up every single thing he's done. Like, yeah, like those guys are easy to understand. And then it's a matter of projecting them long-term versus each other. Right. And stacking them up. Uh, I think like in the floating into a new area, right sometimes you just find a player and you're like, I think that's really interesting, but I don't really know. Like at first, like I didn't know how to place those guys or like um, I knew sometimes that I liked a player, but I didn't necessarily feel comfortable taking a player who was identified outside of that top circuit. Right. Like somebody that I, I met, I happened upon through a relationship or saw in a, a lesser, lesser, uh, famous event, right? Um, or a uh, small college player, stuff like that. Um, those types of players I had a hard time, I think, at first with in my career as an area scout, like really figuring out how to go all in on and, and kind of put myself out there and say, I think this is a good player, you know? Um, so that was the big transition, I think, from just like the evaluating the players part of it. Um, and then you just like, I think too, like my earlier in my career, I, when I hopped in at BA, I kind of had a more robotic view of players, right? Like viewing them more so in the, the chess pieces type of way or the, the assets type of way. And I think that the true like blessing for me and being an Aries job is like, I had to really, really get to know the people. Right. Um, one of the first things that uh, someone said to me, a guy named T.R. Lewis, who had had my area before me, who's um, now scout for the Marlins, uh, he told me high school players are never as mature as you think they are. And it's so true. Um, the now like players are primed for so long, they have like almost literally, sometimes literally scripted answers. You know, um, so like when you're just like trying to like, I, I think some people who are really genuine when you're interviewing on the media side, you can tell like they're being earnest and then you can kind of sometimes tell when people are kind of putting on or performing for you. Um, I think like when you really, really scout a player and watch them repeatedly and talk to them repeatedly and talk to their, their parents and their coaches and their teachers and uh, the people they've they've gotten into disputes with right or had any kind of drama with right you unpack all of this stuff in their life mm -hmm. um really just puts the, like you see the person a lot more um, yeah the, so yeah i'm curious you brought that up we, we constantly hear from scouts that that the makeup is really important and the makeup matters and i think from people who are on the outside looking in it's very easy to kind of overlook that or not put a significant amount of merit on it. Cause especially in baseball where it's so statistically, 
involved. You, you want to just look at the numbers, see who performs, see how the swing looks. But how do you take that information that you're gathering, all of that makeup information that it, it seems from my perspective, it's hard to quantify. Like, how are you putting that together for the team from an area scouts perspective to make different informed decisions and, and like what sort of things are you looking for that are viewed as positives or negatives? Like, is it, is it simply just work ethic stuff? Is it, is it how personalities are going to mesh with your specific organization? Are there, are there specific personality traits that you guys were primed to target or to be wary of? Like what are some of the ways you kind of use that information and, and contextualize it within a report to make a decision on? Yeah, some sometimes it's it's hard too because it's it doesn't fit in a report, right? Like, um, I think that's part of like why the the guys who are labeled typically as old school scouts, right, uh, get framed negatively is because it's very difficult to actually articulate what is different, right? Like, and it sounds like so cliche. Like, I was sitting with a buddy who's an area scout now two days ago, three days ago. And I was telling him about a player and I was just like, this guy's just, I don't know. And he's just really good. And he goes, he's got it. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, but you can't just like go into a meeting and, and tell the scouting director and the assistant GM, like he's got it, you know, like it doesn't, you know, like it, it doesn't quantify, like you're saying, doesn't really put it in, in the proper perspective. I think I always, just my overarching philosophy now in, in terms of keeping it very simple is look for plus athletes with plus makeup. And if you keep it that simple, generally, that's going to guide you pretty well. Um, the function, like the, as far as like actually like figuring out what makeup is and what matters, right. Um, I think there are so many means that you have now uh, if you, truly earnestly develop a relationship and develop relationships around players. Um, I think that some, sometimes what happens is like we, we are constantly in scouting, uh, chasing more and more players and getting into another game and seeing another, you know, getting another report in and making sure we're ahead of this and that and pro games and minor league and amateur, you know, like just constantly moving. Um, I, what I found, uh, and this was, uh, Donnie Reynolds, who was an area scout for the Diamondbacks when I first got started, um, great athlete, legend in Northwest, uh, Donnie, I remember him telling me, you know, a relationship grows with time. Time is the fuel to a relationship. Um, and so if you constantly show up, you will develop relationships with coaches, with players, right? Um. And if you invest time in players as they move on, right? Like in the draft cycle, you get one guy, maybe, you know, as you, you get your, from your team gets one guy from your area, right? Um, maybe two, maybe three, maybe seven, you never know, but like it, it's random. Uh, but every year in your area, there's 50 to a hundred players that you want to meet and kind of engage with and talk to and kind of see what, what type of person they are. And I think, uh, developing those relationships, you can kind of find out more so what's under the hood with with people, um, what type of person they are behind closed doors uh, when they're not, you know, in front of everybody. Um, 
And then I think the earlier you build that relationship with the player, uh, the better position you're in uh, to know who they actually are. I think like a lot of what I learned in terms of makeup with players happened in those winter months. Uh, not necessarily just the winter months of their senior or, or their draft year, but uh, like those, I would invite players to come hit at a facility to take BP. Uh, even if you're not in shape, like even if you don't want to swing the bat, just come hang out. Right. Um, getting players in informal at- atmospheres like that and then watching how they compete, uh, watching Watching how they compete, again, it sounds like kind of cliche. And I think the reason it, like, it matters, though, is like those guys who do have that competitive nature, they bring that into the weight room. They bring that into like their, the way that they strategize their plan, like their training. Uh, they, they bring that to their nutrition. Uh, so sometimes it's just finding players who have that, right, that want factor, right, and realizing that, okay, we connect that player with, the proper resources or like a coach that knows how to get the best out of that guy. Like he's going to do everything that he's told to do. Exactly. Right. So he just like, there's upside there because he just hasn't been taught properly. Right. Uh, and that's aside from the upside of how the body moves, what the tools are, right. What the performance is, you know? So I think that makeup's really difficult. Uh, but when you put it all together, like it, it is very much the it's the ingredient that needs to be there for a, an athletically gifted player to be a great baseball player. In mm-hmm. most cases, that's kind of my my stick on on the makeup side of things, I guess. Awesome. Yeah, he talks about the difficulty sometimes of articulating why you like a player. Like you talked about that it factor and how that can be. Uh, you know, you can't just go into a meeting and tell your boss he has it, at least not today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've always found in just in what we do, the report writing process helps a lot in terms of clarity of thought. We're all sometimes thinking my mind's where a player should be relative to another. And then I'll actually write up a report on each guy. And then I'll be, you know, breaking down you know, each of the players, five tools and everything about the player. And then I'll say, wait, you know, these two pitchers who I have, you know, a, a player, a lined up here and B down below. And then, then I'm writing the report on each of them. And I'm thinking, well, that order doesn't make sense <laughs> based on what I've written. And I know talking to like, we've had other, you know, people such as yourself who've gone on from, you know, the working at B, BA to go on to work in, you know, scouting both on the amateur side and and on the pro side. And I know a lot of the feedback they've gotten from their bosses is how much they like just the reports (laughs) that they write. Uh, But I don't know what that process has been like for you as far as the, the reports that you've had to write as far as what goes into them in terms of the similarities or, or differences from when you were working at baseball America or just how, how helpful that, process is for you when you're trying to evaluate or, or line up players in your area yeah i think sometimes like the a classic story of that, that comes to mind when you bring that up is uh i was i think it was my first year at ba actually it might have been my second 
No, it was my first. Uh, Lamont Wade was at Maryland. Um, and uh, like I had seen Maryland in early in the year. Um, you know, Brandon Lau was there. I didn't go to see Brandon Lau. I was, that was so, I was so raw in my scouting abilities, but I didn't even know he was an eligible sophomore, Brandon Lau. Um, but Lamont Wade was just like another kind of interesting guy, right? Um, we did a little bit of reporting on him right in the process, watched him play a little bit, and then we wrote him up. And we're like, wait a minute, this guy's like ranked like 350 or whatever. I don't know where he was. It's like, we're kind of describing like a pretty decent little player. Like, he sounds like he can hit, run, play center field. Like, that's it. That's a prospect. And he just kind of slowly like trickled up our list that way. Um, I think that uh, uh, one of my buddies in, in college, who's now uh, is now a pro scouting director, him and I used to go to minor league games uh, when we were in college, and we just nothing was super close to where we went to school, but we'd drive back uh, together. Obviously, like we'd carpool and drive back from Binghamton to Ithaca, where we were, so we'd go see you guys like. Xander Bogarts playing in double A at Binghamton there. Um, and we just like talk about it, like immediately, like afterwards, like break down what we saw. Right. And then I think if you like as an evaluator, if you get into a practice of that kind of more so like not necessarily the report itself, but making sure that you're diligent to organize your thoughts about the player rather than just kind of consuming the game or the three at bats with the player and then moving on to the next one. Uh, and then filing your report whenever you can, right? Getting it on paper whenever you can. I think that that helps you kind of like really crystallize what your thought is on a player because uh, it's very easy to over project and dream on a player, right? Especially a young player uh, in an atmosphere where the competition's just okay. Um, you see players who are not that gifted do some incredible things sometimes. Um, depending on the context. So I think like really having a process for breaking it down. And then I think on the scouting side, uh, in my time as an area scout, uh, you, like I found that there were certain guys on the staff that I really had great relationships with uh, the scouting staff. So it was like, uh, I'd be, I'd be on my way home from a game and call, you know, one of my friends who scouted for us in California and say, Hey man, this is what I just saw. Like, can I break this down for you? Where does this fit in the draft for you? Cause you have that thought of, man, I just saw this guy that kind of, kind of looks like a second rounder to me, mm -hmm. you know? So you put all that out there like, all right, well, high school, righty, 93 to 96, good life, fair command, but it's okay. Like the body, like the arm action, Breaking ball flashes, but it's inconsistent. All right, where does that fit? Like, and so you kind of force yourself to organize your thoughts on, like, what does this guy need to do to be in a certain major league role versus where is he likely to stack up against the rest of the players in his class, right? And then you kind of, kind of like weed players out that way too. It's like, all right, well, this guy's a high school player who's committed to a school that does a great job, right? Uh, he has representation that's not going to have him taking pennies at the back end of the draft, right? So, like, 
good prospect, but needs a little bit more development. That's not really a guy that shoots himself up over the other players. Definitely could be good down the line, but he's, he is where he is. Right. So like resolving those thoughts, sometimes like, honestly, it, it happens at the game. Like, and I think that like, uh, prospects probably experience this sometimes for guys who are borderline prospects, like, the scouts will show up, watch the first three innings, and the game will be in like the heat of the game, and the scouts will just disappear. Right? It's like they know he's like like yeah, the kid's interesting, but my team's not going to get to what it's going to cost to get this kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, no, I, I don't know if that totally answers your question, Ben, but that's like. Yeah, I think it is important to like be like super reflective, whether it's like sitting down and carefully writing the report, because like we're all human. And mm-hmm. I think as we move through things like without kind of taking a closer look at it, uh, sometimes we are just like subject to our own biases that yeah. we have. You know? So, that's, yeah, that's all a lot of stuff that makes sense. I think like to Ben's point. I, I find myself just thinking a lot more thoroughly through players when I'm actually writing. It's something about that writing process that, like you said, Hudson, allows you to kind of crystallize your thoughts is really useful. And, and the point you made about just being able to call up people in the organization and talk through players is super valuable, even from our perspective. I think one of the things that I miss most about actually being in a physical office are, are those conversations, just you're able to have them much more easily in much more naturally uh, in person, uh, although we still we're kind of constantly talking about that sl- stuff over Slack and me and Ben on this podcast, kind of like doing it live for the listeners. We, we do that a lot, but it is super valuable to just like constantly hear other people's perspectives of the same player. I think that's one of the things that I, I really valued a lot when I was learning from you, Huddy, when when you were at Baseball America, kind of showing me the ropes. Um, and now that we have uh, another another person on staff really focused on the draft and Peter, I've already gotten just, um, just more other perspectives on players that I maybe hadn't even thought about that maybe changes how you um, place a player on a board or think about a player's profile um, is all really interesting. Uh, One of the next things. No, no, go ahead. I mean, well, just on that, like there's sometimes there's like a difference between like how you're, like you can scout the same way, right? Like you can see, see things the same way, but value them differently. Like, and I think like if we have two lists side by side of 10 players, like I might order mine very differently than you, even, even though we may have some very similar philosophies. So I think like understanding why is really, really helpful. Right. And I think that also like the teams that make the best decisions, I think, weigh those things in terms of like actually understanding who knows the player best versus like getting outside perspectives right um i think that's like it's one of the big challenges that that teams have when they're you know you have scouts all over the country so it's like one guy see goes into a meeting having seen like 50 players from various different his list is totally different than another one's right so like that collaborative process where you just like break things down. And then also just like being at the field, you just like hear kind of how everybody is thinking about things. Like if you have an earnest relationship and people are talking candidly or like people can tell that you're interested in learning, 
you know, um, their perspective. Like some of the best conversations I had uh, in my time as an area scout are with other scouts who I'm like, wait, oh, that's why you like this guy? Like I, I totally missed on him. And now it makes so, makes so much sense, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, how you're breaking down. You're talking about those conversations that you were have with scouts, both within your own organization and outside the organization. Uh, for you, especially getting started when you were earlier in your career as an area scout, what did what did the organization do for you, or, or what did you take upon yourself as far as training and developing as a scout? I mean, the fortunate thing for us, and, and obviously too, when you were here at Baseball America's you know, we can go to games and just have an excuse to pick up the phone and call anybody and pick their brains about whether it was a specific game uh, we were at or, or breaking down certain players or just talking general philosophy, um, which is always fun to get sidetracked on like a two hour call <laughs> with a scout or, or a hitting coordinator, just talking, uh, you know, just general philosophy and theory. But uh, what, what were some of the things that happened for you as far as your uh, that were key for you to develop your your eye or your um, just your talent as a, a scout and everything that the job entails? Yeah, um, I think that honestly, like it, it is being at the field is really like because uh, I got to the field quite a bit when I worked at VA, but uh, it really literally became an everyday thing for me uh before i was you know (laughs) married and had any real life at all uh when i hopped into the job as an area scout i was just like at least one game a day you know like that's that was the mindset so which forces um, a lot of reps yeah yeah and but also like the reps of those conversations too and then it's like Mm. it's kind of like an ever-flowing thing too where it's like uh friend of mine kevin burrell is a scout in georgia right uh high draft pick out of high school has a lot of experience scouting caught professionally right so like having a conversation with him early in my career about what he's looking for right and then a colleague uh todd green seeing him a week later right uh who's uh you know works for the diamondbacks was a teammate um and then getting his perspective and, and like saying, Hey man, like this guy told me this and you guys both caught at a high level. Like, how do you think about this concept? Right. So I think like kind of just the ever flowing conversations uh, were very helpful. Uh, the other thing too, is like the organizations that I've worked with have done a really good job. I think of, you know, putting scouts in a position to, to actually learn and have structured conversations about scouting. Um, in different environments, uh, whether that's the Arizona Fall League, uh, Major League coverage, uh, the Dominican going in, running around the Dominican from, you know, waking up and getting kind of with those area scouts down there. And they'll pick you up at the hotel. We'll, we'll eat breakfast. We'll go to one workout. We'll go to the next one. We'll go to the next one. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll go back to our academy for a second, watch some kids who are coming here to hit, and then we'll go back to the hotel. And, uh, they're all 13 years old and they're all better than every player in your area. So <laughs> like the, you know, going from that environment and then understanding like, yeah, it's totally different. It's a very different culture and experience, but also it's actually the same exact thing. 
It's actually the same exact thing. We're still figuring out how to go from point A to point B and what it needs to look like and how to train it and how to do it the best way possible. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think like being put in different environments and then also just you, you can get more out of these things if you're uh, really focused at them. Cause I think it's also easy to just like, kind of be like, okay, well I'm here. Like, this is cool. Like mm -hmm. I'm hanging out at Alec box stadium, watching the best pitcher in the country. Like I'm going to lock in on that, just that. And I'm not, not really like, it's easy to kind of go through the motions. And I feel like at certain points in my career, I've seen that, you know, that happens. So I think like having the mindset of constantly, like you need to stay curious and you need to just like keep learning. Uh, that's what, what keeps you, I think, away from kind of that mindset of like the, you know, the jaded version of the observer of the game. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I think it's funny how a lot of these conversations just naturally, maybe it's not surprising to anyone, but a lot of these conversations and learning moments just happen at the field. I think for both of you guys with me, like Ben, the first time, I think I, the first time I met you in person was at winter meetings. And one of the things you were going to was an international workout. And I was like, I've never been to one of these. Like, I want to pick Ben's brain on what's going on. So like, let me just follow him to this workout. And, and just seeing players in a different context at a different age than I'd ever seen before was useful just to like contextualize myself with that. And then Hudson, one of the first times that, that I had, I'd, I'd hung out with you a little bit before, but I remember we went and saw Austin Beck at a high school game and just seeing what the process was like for you, both to just learn the job at BA and getting acclimated to the scouting community right there while seeing like a, a player who was viewed as a first round talent and went on to be drafted in the first round like the amount of learning that happens at the field that has nothing to do with the players um, specifically in any given situation is it's just super cool that that's like actually the office, you know, um, we joke about that and just kind of talk about that in passing, but it, it, it's actually the case. Um, so it's cool to see that, that you're able to have all those experiences with people in the organization as well. One of the things I wanted you about uh, to ask you about, and Ben, if you wanted to kind of pick up on this topic, you can interrupt me, but I feel like a lot of people, Hudson, want to know like some of the cool data and tools you have to work with on the team side. That that's always kind of my biggest curiosity from from my perspective now is like if I were to immediately start working for a team, like how much more data would I really have at my fingertips? And it's especially interesting because I think even from our perspective at, at Baseball America, the amount of information and the number of sophisticated tools we have to work with now compared to six years ago in 2017, it, it, it's just such a different world um, that, that I almost can't imagine going back to that now and, and being able to still do the job because we just have so much more video at our disposal and tools like Synergy and data for high school players that, that, that became popular at the major league level a long time ago. So are there any really cool... I guess when you started, were you surprised at the amount of, of data and information separation from the team side and the public side? And how do you think that's kind of developed over the last five years? Because it seems like there is some sort of lagging um, effect that the teams get these things. And then a few years later, it feels like those kind of become uh, it's easier to kind of get access to some of that at the public level. Yeah, Um so like as an area scout, like I, I was never like tasked with handling data per se, per se, but I've always just like, 
I've been a very curious person forever. So, mm -hmm. um, I think like me, uh, like I think whether you can actually understand what, what data means or like how to manipulate or interpret, uh, big data, uh, in scouting, you have to understand that there are certain traits that are highly valued, whether you value them or not, or you, you understand, you see the value in them or not. Like, there's, there's a market, a trade market forever for somebody who's got 30 inches of vert on their fastball. Always. Like, there's going to always be a market for that player. So, in terms of, like, stockpiling talent and assets, like, that player, whether you, whether you scout them and you like them or not, like if you, what you just see in front of your eyes is something you like or not, it has value. Uh, that player has value to someone. Um, I think in terms of like the the tools I had access to and I worked with frequently as an area scout, um, the synergy tools, like really understanding like what made players unique and then also being able to break things down very granularly at the college level uh very very easily right i think i used to do my own types of research projects and and things that i did at va um where i had to literally go into baseball reference and pull this or that out or uh email somebody to get a list of signing bonuses after the draft and like that now it's it, I think Hudson, oh, one year, one year at NHSI, I think we were even like trying to chart as many of the pitchers we could by hand. And then you were putting them yeah. together afterwards just to see what that told you about uh, pitchers and hitters. And it was like, like thinking about doing that now is insane. Cause you could just get the synergy. You get the exact pitch tracking and for teams, you get track man yeah. for all this. So you can have literally the exact locations, but even something as simple as that, like charting pitches for these guys. Yeah, that's that's actually like it's hilarious that it, now that you bring that up because I did that with uh, PG National every year too, and now it's like a big part of like my October November every year was like logging and making like seeing if there were verifiable like insights that I could get from that data that I like organized cleaned myself and like had on the used to like it was crazy. But now yeah, like now it's like yeah if I. If I hear, theoretically, if I'm an area scout today, like if I hear about a player today, I already have like a huge, huge wealth of video to watch him. Uh, and it's not just like him swinging the bat, like every time the ball's hit to him, I can pull that up. It's not always the best angle, right? Uh, and I think you need to do a lot. There's still a lot you need to do in person, right? To fully understand the player. But like, as far as, getting the basics down and understanding kind of what you're going to look at and what you, what questions you need to answer about a player. A lot of that stuff is done for you in synergy uh, and, and done for you with the, the batted ball data and the, uh, I, I think that for amateurs as well, like when you do have the opportunity to bring them somewhere where you have the ability to, to gather tech uh, or to use wearable tech or use high tech to gather data, right? Like to get some, to get a young pitcher in front of a, a mobile track man unit uh, or to get blast motion data from a hitter. Um, it's, 
honestly, like the usage rates of pitches, right? Uh, there's so much that you can, it's, it's like, it's less about projecting than it is in certain cases. It's more about changing, like just the guy's approach to pitching. Like just so many times there's like guys who just like, all right, they don't ever throw this change up or they throw it 8% of the time and it gets 50% whiffs when they throw it. So like maybe there's an untapped plus pitch in there. Right. And he's throwing this poor slider flattens out and gets whacked, but his coach likes to call it because his coach has a sink and slide philosophy, right? Uh, so I think it, it, we have so many analytical tools at our disposal on the team side. Uh, the thing that you guys probably on the media side don't have as much access to is the, is the actual uh, data from TrackMan. I'm guessing you don't have as much, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's crazy how much more we have now than five years ago, though, I would say just like the fact that so many more events yeah. are taking that information, but definitely it is not, it's not as easy just to get like a big file of everyone's track men compared to pretty much everyone in college, you can pull up on synergy. So there's, there's a bit more of a, a gate you have to get through on that one for sure. Yeah. I, I would also say that like the MLB prospects link, um, I'm not sure if people are super familiar with what that is, but it's kind of a an effort by MLB to centralize the questionnaire process for players. Um, you know, when I first started uh, in scouting, like I printed out my own questionnaire and I handed it to players, like, and said, "Will you give this back to me when I come see you again?" Like, <laughs> it was like that seems like so uh, antiquated now. But like uh, now, like I remember in 2020 when we did when we were taken off the road and scouting and, you know, we were kind of we were working on just kind of analyzing players with all the information that we had on. them, Right. Um, I think like the questionnaires, right, like the things that people put on paper, uh, the access to, to that. Um, it's a small part of the process, but it does like give you a sense as to like because there are some people who are great baseball minds who are just not very articulate when it comes to like filling out a questionnaire. Right. So you're not going to get, you won't get that. Mm -hmm. You won't totally understand that person. But then there are players who are like very cerebral, who are super articulate, who can kind of explain their process or how they did something or how mm -hmm. they developed a certain way. Um, so that type of data is not data, but like that type of uh, behind the hood stuff. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, that's that's something you had on the team side. And then I don't know, just the, the resources like, I don't know, at, at BA, it was like all right, you, a guy could pop up, but then I, you kind of have to wait until you had like the right amount of sources who had gone and seen him. Right. Like yeah. sometimes it takes a while for a cross checker source or like a national source to go in to get to a pop up player. So it kind of takes a little more time to figure out some of the hidden players. But then on the team side, like you hear about them let's go like mm -hmm. like next day we figure out we have a strategy to get there right yeah. so um yeah so those are some of the differences i i experienced um yeah i think that now like to, to some of your point carlos like the the data is a lot more accessible even mm -hmm. publicly um so i think it's it's harder for teams to create competitive data advantages now 
Uh, and then there, there are those ones that, you know, are doing something, they're figuring something out. Um, but it, it's, it's really interesting to me too, because it's just like, what is next? What could possibly be next right mm -hmm. now? Like we are, we are in a golden age of evaluating and training pitchers and hitters and athletes. Uh, I don't, I, it's, it's like whoever is figuring out the next thing, like, gosh, what is it like? <laughs> well, well, that's a good point because, and, and you talked earlier about how there are certain traits that maybe your organization values that the industry in general values from kind of newer information that's coming out. And I think some of them have this shiny new toy syndrome that won't actually stand the test of time. There are things that people were maybe very confident uh, about with regards to TrackMan or Rapsodo data five years ago that they no longer even believe today. Uh, it's probably even true of two or three years ago, or maybe even the beginning of the year. Uh, but it's got to be, obviously, there's a lot of relevant and actionable uh information and new ideas about the game that are coming out and are going to be helpful for you as an evaluator at the same time like like you said you're at the field every single day from probably january or february through the end of the summer probably even beyond that there's not much downtime for you as a as a scout because you have to see and know so many players in so much depth and detail how do you keep up with the changes in the game while also balancing the you know the practical needs uh, you know especially with the draft calendar the way it is is now in July to try to you know make sure you really have the players in your area dialed in but also kind of continuing your own education of uh, just as an evaluator yeah it's a good question I think uh, there, so it's also like in an organization, like as an area scout, even if you're like kind of the local, like if you're the Braves area scout in Georgia, like you are still very much insulated as you're going around doing all of these things. You're, you're very much insulated away from what's happening in player development, what's happening with the major league team. Like, you know, so uh, I remember one of our executives, uh, probably in my second or third year as an area scout kind of, you know, in, in meetings, you know, addressing the group and saying like, it's, a, it's incumbent upon you guys. Like it's, it's professional baseball and it's, there's a lot of information flowing around, but it's incumbent upon you guys to make sure that you're connected, you know, and that you're building relationships with your teammates so that you understand what's happening across all phases organization. And I think that same mentality has to apply to just the major league game and uh, how teams are going about acquiring players and how they're going about evaluating players. And then, um, you know, just being creative too. Like, you know, like I think like for me, uh, I think I happen to think that the same sided changeup the right on right change up is, the left on left change up is the next big deal, right? Like that's the next uh, rising heater hammer dropper type of thing. We're going to see. Um, Say more. Be, was, yeah. Was that? Uh, because everybody's ready for the rising heater dropping hammer, right? Like 
we have hack attacks not only hack attacks like we have like we can literally program machines to pitch to us from the same exact release point as shohei otani like and the same stuff and the exact same spin and it's uh i think that the the right on right change up is is coming because it's hard to train for like uh a, a, a fastball that has deceptive life at the top of the zone and a, a curveball or a, a top spun pitch that's breaking down right towards the bottom of the zone. Those are pretty like the pitching ninja overlays are cool because you can see them split. But like mm-hmm. generally, if you're prepared for guys who can do that, like it, it, it's really hard to like handle something that's breaking down and in on you. Right. So I think just in terms of like overall deception, I think that's that's going to be a pitch that hitters are going to struggle with in the next few years. Um, mm-hmm. That said, like uh, Ben wants it to be the splitter Hudson, so he he's mad that there might be another pitch that's going to uh, maybe be sexier than the split. He's all can, in on that one. Can you teach the robot I mean, the split? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing is like. I, I I think you guys talked about this on your last pod. Like the the splitter, it is like it is super effective. I think that the challenge with it is like maintaining arm health while you're trying to learn it, right? Like as an amateur, like and I, I think like I, yeah, I'm glad player, you're bringing this up, Hudson, because we've heard about this consistently. Like, what is the big health question mark with the split? Why is that? Why is that such a question mark in the industry because I, I don't know that i necessarily have the clearest answer uh i think it's my and this is just my take on it but i i think it's more like with how kids try to throw it like um i was actually with a kid this morning who was like talking to me about a splitter who was like 15 or 16 and uh i asked him like when you split it like are you trying to basically guide it with this line in between your index finger and your middle finger, or are you trying to basically guide it with one finger or another? Right. And he just like, he was like, I just kind of squeeze it. Right. And like, basically he was like, I'm, he's thinking like thumb goes through this line. Right. And then just throw the ball. Um, You also like, so if you're not on time, right. If you're not loaded properly, like, your arm is not stacked above your, your forearm is not stacked above your uh, elbow here. Right. And you're trying to throw a splitter when your arm is late getting up. Uh, I think you're just putting yourself in a position to create more stress. Generally. I don't, I don't know if I can explain that super scientifically, but I, I think that just the timing issues that are created, even mentally um, with a player who, who may think, if their thought process may be, I don't want to baby this, right? But that like literally leads to babying, right? Like my thought process is that we don't ever want to really think about what we don't want to do, right? But so when kids are constantly like, don't baby it, don't baby it, don't baby it, they're literally yeah. visualizing what they don't want to do, right? So um, I think that young players create issues. And then also like you're trying to kill this, right? Like if you think about it that way, like, you're trying to cover as much surface area on the baseball as you can, right? And throw it in a place that is going to get a swing and miss or a strike, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think you're you're creating a lot of 
there's a lot of issues back and forth that, that come with learning it at a young age, I think. But like big leaguers, like who like don't have other stuff, go get it, right? So you're the sorry to finish that other idea. You're you're killing spin with one pitch, and then you're at the same time you're trying to build, uh, you know, finger speed and dexterity to snap off uh, a rising fastball, right? Um, and so you're training things in a way that's overall confusing to your mm-hmm. body to make the adjustment happen. That's my yeah ill-formed thought process on it. That's interesting too, because you're talking about like a splitter and how it, it can, how effective it can be and how there are some questions about mechanics. And it does seem like that could be a pitch if it becomes popular. And there are a lot of mechanical kind of foundational pieces that you want in place before throwing it. I could see a scenario where, maybe a kid is throwing a splitter and he's just being very results-based because he wants to throw a nasty split and he wants to get whiffs. And maybe he starts doing something in the delivery to get to that. That's maybe not the most beneficial for him. And maybe that's what leads to the arm health. So that that's an interesting perspective on it, Hudson. And and also take that Ben on your splitter. It's it's not going to become a, a 20% usage what are, pitch. What, what are your guys, what are your thoughts on that though? Like what, how I, cause I, I, I do think it is like it is also the, this thing that happens in the game where it's like, uh, like it's like my wife calls it creepy pasta, where it's like this concept of like you're like we're all afraid of the splitter, so therefore we all have this idea, and then do we find like a justification for why we don't like the splitter? So like I'm wondering if that's what I'm doing like yeah. at a young age. So I'm curious what you guys think. I don't know. I think at this point, I feel like we need to talk to some Japanese youth coaches to, to figure out what they're doing over there. Cause they clearly have a lot of guys who throw it. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to talk to more people about it probably, but I think it is interesting how maybe just the idea of it can come up and then we don't have any specific reasons why we don't like it. So I don't know, Ben, what do you think? Well, I think it's just true of like a lot of things we do, not just in certainly in baseball, I mean, at Baseball America as well, or just in life in general, where, yeah, we like, we've always done things this way and we kind of grow up thinking of things a certain way. And it's like, oh, well, it must be this way for a reason. But we never ask ourselves like, well, is there actually a good reason for this? Is there actually evidence to support this? And like, to your point, what's good for, you know, grown major league player or like a 23 year old in double a is not necessarily the same thing that you want uh you know a 14 year old pitcher to be doing not necessarily speaking specifically to the the splitter but i think there's yeah the the same things you're gonna teach uh you know a 21 year old college junior uh are gonna train them that way is gonna be different than um you know we're talking about like a teenage amateur player but when you were talking about the grip, though, it made me think of like I was talking to a, an international scout recently about a pitcher that they signed. And they were like, yeah, this, you know, he's from kind of like a rural area, didn't come from like a big program or get a lot of great coaching when he was an amateur player. And, you know, he was the scout was saying, yeah, he's saying, show me your your curveball grip. And he showed them this like all like jacked up grip for a curveball that he was trying to throw and it just wasn't working. He's like, uh, all right, why don't you try just throwing it, you know, this way, more of traditional curveball grip. And he's like, Oh yeah. Like the second one was, you know, you could already tell it was, it was much better. 
but for you, I mean, either back when you were just starting as an area scout or, or you maybe when you were back at BA, how much different do you think the quality of coaching is that players are getting now at the high school level, especially at a young age, uh, in particular, probably the, the top players who seem like they all have specialized coaches and, the, and their own strength and conditioning coaches uh, and, you know, their own speed coaches and all, all these, you know, their own hitting coach, their own fielding coach. Uh, how much different do you think that is compared to where you started either as far as the coaching or also going back to what we were talking about earlier, just how they apply and talk about some of the, uh, the data that they're getting from, you know, a hit tracks or a, or a rap soda or a, or a track man system that they're using at the training facility where they're working out. Yeah. It's uh, like, well, if you just like scroll through your Twitter feed, probably you'll see like five kids who, if you click on their bio, it's like class of 2024 exit below 93, uh, you know, like, Fastball 87, 91, 2600 RPM, right? Like these kids are literally in high school and they're not necessarily, they're, they're prospects, but they're not like on the, you know, the prospects in the same, same way that someone's a prospect at Baseball America, you know, like they're, they have upside and they can play college baseball, but they're like just trying to get recruited, you know, and they've got less high tech data on their pages like they've been able to collect it somewhere right so there is that type of tech everywhere now and it's become a little bit more affordable and a little bit more accessible um i think that it's kind of like in the amateur side it it can be dangerous like and i think that's part of like again i'm careful to not come across as like old school baseball scout this way but like i, I think that it's like sometimes when we when we in our work now like we turn the hit tracks off is when we get some of our best results because and it's not because like the data the data is not valuable it's super valuable it's just like a young kid can be trained to chase an immediate result and then you can hate baseball really quickly like so i i think uh the other thing too is like the data that we collect in kind of the cage uh, or a bullpen is often very different than what shows up on the field. And it's not very different. Like you don't lose 10 miles an hour, but like there's, there are differences that happen uh, when we're actually just on the field competing. Uh, the adrenaline flows, uh, the weather is X, Y, Z to affect the game and how we feel. Um, but I don't know. I, I just think that like I've seen in the facilities, like kids like making horrible habits, right. To like pull baseballs that are in uh, inside on them, for example. Right. Uh, and building habits that will allow them to like, yes, if they catch the ball properly, they'll hit it harder than they can otherwise. Right. With a, with a more repeatable swing, uh, more functional swing to hit. Um, so and then the same thing happens too with the on the pitching front is like uh, if some of this new tech was like really studied and understood like how to use it, then like yeah, it'd make a ton of sense. Like it, I, I think like 
the kids who kind of run through, like they'll download like driveline's free program and do it on their own. Right. And have, they don't even look at where they're throwing or uh, they don't even really like look at how the exercises are supposed to be done properly. Right. Uh, and then driveline gets a bad rep because they're like, uh, you know, this kid's wild and he did driveline. Right. But it's, it's just like the, the way it's been coached or delivered to the player is overly focused on one metric, uh, which is just like, kids will ask me too. It's like, what, how hard do I need to throw? Well, like you need to have a quality fastball, right? Like you could throw 90 if you have elite deception, right? It, I would consider 20 inches, 25 inches of vert on your fastball is deception, right? Um, so there's like, I think that we get, the data leads to the kids chasing one metric that's supposed to define them. And then also the recruiting game leads them to think that that's what they need to do. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was going to ask, which yeah. do you think the biggest issue in the space now is just the access to all the technology that gives you these like hard and fast quantified metrics? Or do you think it's the fact that the college recruiting game is played at such a young age? Or do you think it's the fact that the kids are always going to want to try and replicate what they're seeing at the big leagues? Or do you think it's some combination of all of those? Obviously, the travel ball scene is much different than it was 20 years ago. I'm not sure exactly how far back you'd have to go before you get to really the old school travel ball scene, but it feels like there are a lot of different areas in the space now that are like, you can pretty easily see why a lot of these things are happening. And maybe it's not the most beneficial if you're not going into it with someone who's like highly educated in the area to kind of show you the ropes um, and maybe to show kids you don't necessarily need to be throwing 95 when you're 16 to, to have success. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it's, it's tough. It's very difficult to evaluate players generally. Like uh, I think that if you're a college coach and you only get to see a guy a few times before you feel like you have to make a call to go get him, Right. Uh, the ones that you're going to gravitate towards are like, yeah, the guys who are, big and physical already who hit the ball 500 feet and throw 99 miles an hour in high school like those. And then it, there's a slow trickle down from there. Those guys who project to be really good. Sometimes like in high school, they throw 85, like uh, Chase Dolander was 86 to 89, touched 90 maybe in Jupiter this senior year. Right. Like mm -hmm. guy throws a lot harder now. Like, uh, Hurston Waldrop, like topping at three or four, probably in the like a month before the shutdown in 2020. Uh, Will Sanders, man, like th these Georgia arms are a great example, actually, of it. But like this, uh, I don't know, players change. Um, I, I don't remember exactly where your question was, but like there's they, a lot that goes into it. it. I, I think that like there is there is a it is easier to go get the the guy who's already throwing a hundred right or the guy who's already got the elite tools who's already kind of put on a pedestal for you. I think it's harder to understand when a guy is throwing eighty five that he's going to be one of the better players in three years. Um, and so that leads to a culture where people think that they need to be the guy who throws a hundred to be good or to get onto the radar which they do to a certain extent. It's just like a vicious cycle. I think that also like we have, we live in a 
social media world where like we see everyone's best swing all the time. Like we like there are guys like if you were looking at an off season video of a guy hitting a ball 110 miles an hour at drive line, you don't see that he like clips the one right off like before that off of his foot and hit it 40 miles an hour. Like you never see that. Like so I think it, it leads to this mindset of like, man, for me to even be good and to be like that guy, I have to hit the ball 110 or I have to throw a hundred. Uh, and so therefore like that's going to be the entire mindset of my training. Yeah. Um, and like throwing a hundred is really good. I love guys who throw a hundred. <laughs> I'm not being critical of that at all. I'm just like, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat and like for like the path to throwing a hundred should include a lot of different things so that you can stay healthy so that you can command the baseball so that you can uh, compete with a second pitch with a third pitch, right. That you can attack certain parts of the zone with consistency. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, big leaguers hit anything if, if you don't have the rest of that behind you. So yeah, and I, I think you hit on Hudson one of the most common misconceptions from high school players or their parents too, is that they get they can tend to get fixated on certain metrics that they think that you know whether it's us at Baseball America or somebody like yourself in a role as a scout with an MLB club, thinking that we put this on a pedestal and are using it as a you know a central part of our evaluation of the player thinking of you know like arm strength or arm velocity let's say from shortstop right like you'll go to a showcase not like you know not one not a showcase run by a you know by mlb scouts uh but you know one of these showcase companies and and i understand why they do it but they'll have like a radar gun when the kids take you know a handful of ground balls from shortstop and they'll show everybody's, you know, infield velocity. And it's like, yeah, that's great. You threw 90, whatever from the infield, but I watched you throw and you took like seven shuffle steps to get to the ball. And that's, you know, again, like we care about arm strength, right? Like you're grading out a player's arm strength, but really when you're watching in and out, even more so than just raw arm strength, you're looking for, the player's footwork, the player's hands, his actions, his body control at the position. And even then it's still just, you know, in and out, you want to see it in a game to see the internal clock and all that, or again, exit velocity. Like we definitely care how hard you hit the ball. Like this is not so like old school, like crank complaining about exit velocity. It, it matters. But when you're evaluating, especially a young you know, whether it's an international player who's 15, 16 years old or, or a high school player at, at the same age, you, you really care more about, I think, the kind of the inputs and the process to get there, right? Like you're looking at bat speed, you're looking at how the swing works. Like, yeah, like you said, you can have a swing that's all jacked up and really hit the ball hard off a tee or off, you know, your pitcher who's just grooving the ball right down the middle to you in batting practice. But, you know, you're as a scout, you, you kind of care more about the the mechanics of how the swing works. Is there bat speed there? Uh, and we can, you know, layer more strength on, especially again, if you're 16, 17 years old, uh, you know, some guys obviously are early physical, mature guys too. And, and there's not as much physical projection and, you know, maybe they're 
already hitting the ball harder, but it's more about, well, how hard are you going to hit the ball down the road when you're 23, 24 years old at the age where we're projecting you to be in the big league. So I think a lot of times young players and, and their parents as well can kind of get confused about how, you know, either we at baseball America or how clubs use the information that they're, they're getting from, from those sources too. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it's also, it's like, it's hard to quantify. Like we have stuff like hit tracks, right. Or uh, the portable track man units, right. Like I wish like people cared or knew that we, that like evaluators cared about like how many line drives you hit. Like, like we do, like the, we need to see like the pure ability to hit like, uh mechanically like there are a bunch of different types of mechanics right and ultimately like every successful major league hitter is balanced is strong has good bat speed can catch up to a fastball uh there's kind of some some basic traits that they all have right but a bunch of them have different ways they go about doing it um mechanics too like I, I think the we talk about like swing changes a lot i think in over like since i've been out of the media i've heard a lot more discussions of swing changers or like this guy changed his swing and so he's going to be different it's really hard to change your swing that you've done ten thousand times in a row mm -hmm. like even if you're like doing it in the cage or like doing it in front toss or like BP or even like live BP in against another pitcher in the facility or like in the off season, like it's very, what most players do is they revert back to their original basic swings. Right. Uh, and then we create a bunch of issues as hitters when we're in between right? like hitters or when hitters are not feeling what they're trying to do when it doesn't feel right for them and they're battling back and forth between two different mechanical approaches, that's when they look horrible. That's when they look like they can't hit at all. That's like when they look broken. It's like, who broke this guy? You know? Um, I, I will say just on like the broader point though, like we've like heard it forever. Like power is the last thing to come, mm -hmm. but like, so is testosterone, right? Like it's like you're, we're, we're looking at children. Like, we have to like keep that in mind. And I think that when we are looking at the best ones, like they don't look like children. Right. So that's, that's part of it is like Termar Johnson hits a ball 110 miles an hour at 17 years old and it's out at the trop or whatever, like at a big league stadium, it's hard to like view that person as still a child, but that person's projectable just because he's a child, literally like, mm -hmm they're 17 like you're like i don't care who's who you are like your testosterone is not likely to peak. your ability to, to regenerate muscle to heal to recover yourself is not likely to peak until your early 20s to late in some cases so like that's the thing that just weirds me out about the college recruiting game right now is uh we know power comes later we know that it has a way better chance to come when guys eat enough, 
they eat the proper amount of protein, they get the vitamins that they need, and they have a structured weight training, speed, agility training program in place. So I think like in terms of projecting guys, like or, or what where guys are actually going to be when it's time for them to be on the field, like there's so much. I, I, w- I just really think like we need to start with the base of like who has a repeatable swing, who has the bat speed to catch up to a heater, who tracks spin, right? Who tracks a breaking ball, who can track a changeup, who's got the mm-hmm. instincts to like go attack a pitch. That, uh, there's a, a young man at Parkview High School, not, not the most famous guy at Parkview High School, right? But a, a left-handed hitter the other day I'm watching in Georgia here, and this kid hits a home run on a, a backside bomb on a fastball. It's like 86 or 87, probably, in his first at-bat. And the first at, like pitch of the next at-bat is a breaking ball, backside, backdoor, and he whacks that out of the yard, too. Like So, like, there's something about his mind that told him, like, hey, this guy's probably not going to throw me a fastball, right? Like, he, he anticipated the situation, kept a direct swing, was on time. Like, that's that's showing me a trait right like he had a home run it wasn't wasn't 500 feet but it was a you know it was a backside home run he probably has average raw power maybe maybe 40 raw power right now like probably 40 raw power that same kid but it's it's likely to go in a positive direction because he's a pure bat you know who's going to get older bigger faster stronger right um so I, I think we start from I always want to start with that foundation of like who's a pure bat and pure bat encompassing all these things that we're getting at. Like the mechanics are functional. Uh they show the ability to stay balanced and stay on off speed pitches, right? They show the ability to anticipate different types of situations. They make adjustments when they've seen one pitch already and they know how it looks. Um so those are kind of the the foundational traits that I think you need to have to become ultimately to hit home runs in the big leagues. Because like these guys who hit the ball 500 feet at uh, some of these showcases, right, that can't actually hit when the game starts, like they don't have any home runs in the big leagues because they don't play in the big leagues. Like they come scout. So, <laughs> well, I think the same is true for pitchers too, right? Like you're, like you were talking about with Chase Dolander, where yeah, he's not the hardest throwing guy. Not that he's a soft tosser by any means in in high school, but you know people get confused of well you know, especially at the high school level, how can this guy be ranked higher than that guy when he doesn't even throw as hard? Well, one, you know, it's not just about velocity, obviously, but who's going to actually be throwing harder, you know, five years down the road when, you know, this kid might throw a little bit harder right now, but he's built like a defensive end. Whereas this other kid is maybe even a year younger in the same class, but he's, you know, six three, one seventy, 170, great arm speed, uh, real easy delivery. It's, you know, for pitchers, for me, at least I'm looking for at that age, not just velocity, I'm looking more for, for starter traits and, you know, future projection, I guess, so to speak on this podcast, but you know, how, how much harder is he going to be throwing down the road? Does he have feel for spinning a breaking ball? There's a lot of different kind of deliveries and arm actions and mechanics that you see from players in the big league. So I don't want to be necessarily cookie cutter about that, but uh, you know, 
I'd certainly want to see somebody who isn't just a kind of a max effort animal out there. I want to see some, you know, ease to the operation that's hopefully going to lend itself to being able to throw more strikes and just looking for kind of the the building blocks of a starter rather than somebody who, you know, I think might be, you know, a hard thrower and, and might even be a future big leaguer, but is a, you know, a very high percentage <laughs> chance that he ends up in a, in a bullpen role. hundred percent. And I think the other thing too, that you get at with like why high school, like why high school righties fail typically and why they're so scary for pro teams. Right. It's like, uh, if you look at just like the kind of like the underlying principle of why, uh, why weighted baseballs are thrown, it's like the the research on it is like drivelines unpacked a bunch of this and they've put it all out there, right? It's like you're literally creating less stress on your arm when you throw slower, when you throw a heavier ball slower, you're creating less stress in all the areas that we stress the arm, right? The, the arm, broadly speaking, uh, from the fingertips to the shoulder, right? Um, so we think about that way, like when somebody is 15 years old throwing 94, right? Like they're, they're like not fully developed physically, right? They're creating a lot of stress by the nature of throwing 94, no matter how they do it. Like on a young body, that's likely to cause some, some challenges, right? As you're developing the other thing that happens is when you throw 94 at 15, everybody wants you to come throw for them, right? Come throw out their thing, come throw it my, for my team, come throw two innings and then you throw four, right? Like you get off your routine pretty quickly. So a lot of damage is caused by the, not because you necessarily because you throw hard, but because you're in a position to create more stress than you needed to because you threw hard. Right. Does that make sense? What I'm getting at? Like, yeah, you're put the fact that you throw hard puts you in situations as you otherwise wouldn't have been in that creates that stress. Right. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So that's why why I've never had an elbow injury myself. Same. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I really uh, prioritize my, my health. So I didn't ever get over maybe 80 miles per hour at my peak. Yeah. No, I always rest my arm. I never throw more than a hundred (laughs) pitches. Yeah. They, uh, yeah, but it's like, it is, unfortunately, it's like what happens, right? So, like, you think about the travel baseball world, like these 15U, 16U programs, like they want to win, right? They want to establish the, their brand. They want to, like, have a good team. You know, they want to get guys committed, so they want to throw them in front of a bunch of coaches, right? They want to throw them at a bunch of things, right? Like, you know, so we – we create a lot of these issues for these kids who are, who are physically advanced at a young age, uh, who wear their bodies down. And then meanwhile, like those kids that are, you know, gradually climbing from 75 to 80 as a freshman to, you know, uh, 82, 84 as a junior to 86 to 90 as a senior to, you know, 90, 93 as a freshman to 92, 95 as a sophomore to, you know, those guys are, are in a better position because they haven't logged all that stress at 95. That's, that's kind of just my theory of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, Hudson, I can't believe we've gotten this long into the conversation without asking you about Drew Jones, because that one was awesome to see from the outside looking in. And 
I want to know just like kind of what the experience of scouting and signing Drew Jones, who we had as the number one player in the class in 2022. Uh, so that gave the D-backs back-to-back years with our our top player on the draft board, despite not picking first overall in the draft. Um, and also, I'm just kind of curious how stressful 2022 was for you in general, because you know you guys are picking number two overall. It's a fantastic year for Georgia. Uh, in addition to Drew Jones, you had Termar Johnson, you had Dylan Lesko, you had Kevin Parada. I have to imagine, like, in your mind, you're like, well, all of these players are probably in play for the pick. So, like, what is the process of scouting players for a first-round pick with that sort of, uh, I guess, impact on the organization? And And what was your experience scouting Drew Jones specifically? Because, obviously, from our perspective, all these players were – we're tops in the class for a long time and a lot of fun to watch, but I'm curious, like what that perspective is like from the experience of, of the guy who's now going to be his signing scout for, for whatever he does in the big leagues. And we, we just saw him got a hit off Shohei Otani in, in spring training. So that was kind of cool. But what was that like for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we talked earlier about just like seeing players as uh, like robotic versus like being scout and like seeing them a lot and getting to know them a little bit and, uh, getting to appreciate them as humans. Like, I just think that um, Drew Jones is just an awesome, awesome kid. Like, there's there's no doubt about it. And, uh, like, whatever he achieves in the game, uh, I, I will obviously be super proud to be associated with that. But, like, just who he is as a person, like, he is genuinely uh, a really positive, kind human. Uh, and just uh, – He's just, he's a cool kid. Like that's, it's that simple. Like Drew's really, he was a lot of fun to watch uh, and scout through the the years that I was able to scout him. Um, uh, I can just tell you, like, there are some players out there, right. Where like the social media world kind of takes over and makes them appear a certain way, like that they're incredible. Right. Uh, I think I saw Drew play 30 times last year and he is absolutely it. It's real. Um, it's, uh, it's like one of those things that you, you kind of start writing it down, uh, when your reports and you're like, can I really put that? Like, can I really put that? Um, and, uh, I just, I really love the way he plays the game. Um, just the opportunity to watch him play so much. It was such a unique, unique experience. Um, like, and you don't know, like the whole process, you don't know how the rest of the country is going to play out or, and ultimately like I may be the signing scout for Drew, but it's a team decision, right? Like the Diamondbacks sent plenty of people in, right. To, to go and evaluate him and help them make the decision with that pick. So um, it, it was, it was just a blast too. I think that the thing with, um, you know, Drew's Drew was in a private school, league right uh so i think technically they're a 1a private school right but within that like they're like that league has so many good arms like so many good division one bound arms they don't have the depth of, of some other teams sometimes like in that league but like drew always got everyone's best bolt uh and everyone's best fastball and their best breaking ball in a two-strike situation and um his uh his and he's got the nickname smiley at least he did at wesleyan over there and you can see it like on his first hit in spring training like 
he's smiling before he's his back foot's even out of the box. Like he's got that very infectious, uh, he just has a joy for the game. And I think it, it spreads to the players around him. It's also, it's like the games, of course, the game's really fun when you're that good, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was just a, a truly unique once in a lifetime experience to be able to see a player that good so many times back to back to back. Um, the rest of the players in that class that you mentioned, uh, gosh, we had some good ones. Uh, Termar, Lesko, Parada, uh, Eric Snow. The, I mean, gosh, it was like the the talent too, like the arms too. Like, I I mean, I don't know. I might write a book on twenty two alone <laughs> one year, um, but just like the the closeness of them all too. Like if you're from Georgia and you were here in it, this might make more sense to you. But you have uh, Lesko is maybe twenty minutes to an hour, depending on traffic from from where uh, Drew played which is 20 minutes, 30 minutes to get to Georgia Tech, where Parada was, which is another you know 20 minutes to go see Termar Johnson. Um, and those guys were all just, like, incredible talents to watch. Like, uh, that, like, for me, like, that's why we do this work, ultimately, because it's like, yeah, there are times in, like, where we get to go, like, find a player and help them make their dream come true in scouting. Right. And the same thing is as an agent now, like there are times where that happens, but then there's also those moments where it's just like, wow, that is a gifted, gifted person. Right. Like that's their person still they're Like, it's just like, how, mm-hmm. how, do, how are you that good at this game? It's such a young age. It's just, uh, yeah. I mean, either one of those guys, like, I think, uh, Carlos, you're probably Kevin Prada's like legal hype man. At this I point. think I honestly, with a couple of these guys, I feel like I'm very, uh, very much in the weeds on them. I saw Parada as, uh, I think, a, a rising junior, and ever since then, he's just always mashed. And I'm, and I think Dylan Lesko is the best high school pitcher that I've ever seen. So a couple of these guys, I'm very much invest. And again, Tamar Johnson is is probably the best amateur hitter that I've ever seen. So you had all these guys in your backyard, and I'm curious, does like you had mentioned that you're not really sure like how the class is going to fall outside of your area in any given year, but is there any added sense of pressure or stress just knowing where you're picking and knowing that you have a lot of players who really fit on talent for that pick? Cause like from my perspective, I imagine there would be a lot more stress, but maybe it's a case for you where it's kind of business as usual. You just maybe have more cross checkers coming in to see a lot more of your guys at the top of your your pref list compared to an average year? Is it something like that? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, on, honestly, it, it, it wasn't terribly different from, uh, I mean, it was different. Yeah. Like we had a lot of, a lot of good players that we were looking at at the top there, but the, um, you know, more so in like, in terms of like making sure everyone has what they need to kind of run their process when they come here. Right. Or when they would come to my area and like everybody does it differently as far as like, uh, what they want to see and what they need to see and what type of environment they feel comfortable evaluating the player in. Um, so like in that circumstance, like making sure that our people who were going in had the information they needed to, to go see what they needed to see. Um, there was like small stuff, like, you know, you wanted to, you want to put them in a position like, you know, certain players, like you want to make sure your guys can see them take BP. All right. When they come into town, um, 
you know, the, the other thing too, is like Georgia starts so early uh, in terms of like the preseason stuff uh, and going to watch guys practice and the weather is very wonky. So like more so the scramble of like, uh, is this person going to come here today versus go somewhere else? Um, but the process itself, I, I don't know. I kind of just had the mindset for 22. Like it was just such a unique year that I just wanted to enjoy watching the players, right. And scouting the players. Um, and so I, I mean, I had, I had a lot of opportunities to watch those guys and find good players. And I, I think that that was maybe the diff one difference about it is like ordinarily in a different year, you might spend a little bit time, like there have been times where we had interest in players that went high in the draft that went before our pick. Right. Yeah. Um, and then like, if you're, you kind of understand the trends of the draft and you know, you have relationships and you can kind of, you know, poke a, a buddy and say, man, you're going to take him if he's there at 12. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so like, you, you know, when your team's picking 25, it's like, yeah, like I need to be diligent and have a good process with that player. But like, realistically, like there, if there are, other players it spends that we have more of uh, a chance of getting mm-hmm. right. Um, or that we're just less lighter on information and we want to kind of, I need to kind of run them down Yeah. in a different year. I might, might spend a more, little bit more time on the, the players who are on the back of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, just cause those, those players at the top, I had so many looks at, so it's just, you can only be one place at, at a time. So mm-hmm. um yeah, I think there are some players I would have liked to see a little bit more that went later in the draft, but yeah. Yeah, that kind of led into to my next question. After this one, I'll, I'll let you, Ben, get in. But um, I'm curious if it's more rewarding for you as a scout to get a player like Drew at the top or if it's more rewarding to get like a gut feel guy later in the draft. Because to your point, it does seem like for all the players who are picked at the very top of the draft, it's it's not any one person's decision. It's much more of an, an organizational decision. And it feels like, and again, correct me if, if this isn't the case anymore, but it feels like the players further down in the draft, say on day three, y- your evaluation of that player probably carries more weight in terms of the overall picture that the org has, just because I'm assuming all of the cross-checkers are focusing on the top players who are going to be commanding uh, the biggest percentage of, of signing bonuses that you're given out in a year. So obviously the talent disparity is significant in terms of how we view them. Um, but for you, is it cooler to basically get the guy at the top or to get someone you really like who maybe is a bit more polarizing and, and not as famous later on who you're just happy to have gotten? Because for whatever reason, you think your team is going to uh, get some value here for a player that maybe is is a bit underrated in your mind. Yeah, well, that's... Uh... That's the part of you that's that's the compete part of scouting, right? It's like uh, there are like there shouldn't be many gut feel guys, right? Like theoretically, like the guys who are you have a gut feel for usually are those guys who are at the top. Like, yeah, like the guys with great tools and great performance. Like I have a gut feel that they're going to be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, like it's not that hard. But then like there are guys where you're like you like you show up to a field and you're like like where is everybody you know like uh and i think earlier in my career it was or earlier in my time scouting it was uh like i'd be like oh i'm the only one here like well i don't i must be on the wrong guy you know like and then like the more time i had with players and the more time i had scouting the more i learned it was like okay well i'm the only guy here you know like 
uh, let me lock in on this. This is an opportunity. Um, and I think that, that it's hard to say one is more satisfying than the other, but then there's, um, there is a lot of pride in like feeling like you've put a player in a position to be selected um, that not everyone saw it with, like, cause you kind of do have that, that feeling of, of really providing surplus value for your team. Right. In a tangible way, uh, a little bit, at least, at least a more tangible way. Right. Yeah. Uh, that said too, though, it's like, even, even if there's a player that I'm like that an area scout is the only look at or the only person to see live that player now, because of all the stuff we talked about earlier, there's so many other tools. Like, so you may not have a physical cross-check look at someone, right. But if they're a division one player, you probably have data. Like you probably have a pretty good wealth of data. Um, so there are like, there are players that, aren't really even are never cross-checked or they're cross-checked once or twice, you know, not like universally cross-checked um, who you still get that collaborative team effort with, right. Where like, even if, if only one person or two people has seen them, like the team is still, you know, taking its time to analyze what's in the scouting report here. What's the, like, what does the data say here? And it's still like a team decision, even in that, 20th round or the free agent sign is still like a team decision because it's, yeah, there may be one person who's kind of like greasing the wheels a little bit and saying like, yeah, this is the player I really believe in. I would love it if we could talk about this guy and consider him, you know, there is some of that. Um, but ultimately the teams that every team is just literally like, I mean, I don't know how every team operates, but most teams are just like trying to be carefully, and careful and thorough to just pick the best player to get the best player they can acquire the best talent, the most talent, Yeah. how, you know, and then you, you want to just, you know, use every tool that you're that you can, right. To make that decision. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It is like you said, a collaborative process and I'm sure, especially at the top of the, the draft, what is it like when, or what happens when you as an area scout, say you and your cross checker or you and your scouting director really disagree on a player. Like maybe your, you know, your cross checker, your scouting director comes in and maybe sees this guy once or twice and like, you know, falls in love with him or, you know, maybe the opposite and and you feel a different way. I feel like, as, you know, especially as a younger area scout, you know, is it tempting to just kind of go along with what you're, you know, your director or cross checker is, is saying and just kind of telling them what you, you think they want to hear or is, you know, what is that process like for you? And, you know, you have people in the organization that really kind of disagree on what they're seeing with a player. Yeah. I mean, I think it happens all the time, right? Like that you disagree with people about an evaluation of a player, right? Like, uh, but I think it's like also just understanding that it's not, well, it's like, it's just how different people view things. Right. And value different things too. It's like, as long as we've had like, like for me, it's, it's, those are the golden opportunities to like really connect and understand where we're different in our process. And like mm -hmm. neither of our process has to, processes has to change as a result. Right. Like when, when there are two different scouts and different roles for an organization, like, both of them are being paid for their earnest opinion and evaluation. Right. So like, I, I think having discussion and having a back and forth 
is the best way to go about stuff like that. And then also like I worked with some experienced people, you know, who were able to help me understand why. Right. So I think that, uh, over time, like your philosophies, even if you don't fully get on board or like the same types of things in players, right. Like you'll see, you'll pick and, and choose like some things that really make sense from someone else's process. Right. Even if you're just like, I don't, I don't really agree with that point or how you think of it, but, but that really makes sense to me, you know, like, um, so I, I think that's, and ultimately like the team's going to pick whoever they're going to pick. Right. So like one scout's opinion is what it is. Right. It's like, it's not personal at all. Right. The, the, uh, you separate kind of that, that discussion, right. You just put your opinion down and ultimately if your team doesn't want your genuine opinion, then, what do they want? You know? So like, I, I think that it can be tough for scouts early in their career, like dealing with people who are above them and who have different opinions, but also you just got to write what you see. That's it. And you'll be fine in this game, in the media and the agency side of work, the scouting, like if you just write what you see, like it's your opinion, you know? So were, were there things that with the, Diamondbacks as an organization, were, were there certain characteristics or tools, skills, traits, certain things that they really as an organization valued more so relative to, at least from your perception, relative to other organizations or, or really just placed a higher premium on in, in general, or maybe, you know, they thought that were less important relative to, to industry consensus? uh yes right but i also i don't want to like unpack too much of that just for fair for enough my colleagues sake like they taught me a lot i don't want to just you know give us all the secrets secret. and give it give us all the yeah, secrets no. no i think that what i can say is like they have a very holistic process and they have uh they consider a lot of the things like that we've talked about like they they are breaking things down in every dimension and they have people who are who are curious and who are trying to figure out the next big thing, like kind of what we got at earlier. So like, yeah, there are things that I think too, like when you get, when you get from the outside of it though, to like, not like really explain too much of like internal stuff, but like when you get to the outside of it, if you study the draft, uh, like teams only get like, now they draft 20 players. Right. But within that group, if you look at say like a three year trend, so there's 60 players drafted. You see like, tendencies, yeah. Yeah, like, and if you start to get really granular and, like, what types of players they are and, you know, uh, the demographics positionally and the conferences and the resumes that they had and some of the, the higher, the more advanced data, like the synergy data or the spin or the batted ball data or the, the pitch data, like, those will give you clues. If you Like, it's just for casual fans observing the game and for you guys making your mock drafts, like, those will give you clues as to like who's on who and who's going to be on who. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I, but I just generally speaking, like, yeah, the, the D backs have a very, they have a very solid process. They are definitely onto some, some good things over there. So, yeah, I guess kind of similar to this, that maybe isn't specific to the D backs. Are there any traits or skills or tools that once you were inside on the team side, you found out that were either overvalued or undervalued compared to um, like your experience on the public and media facing side. 
um, that you can speak about? Uh, yeah, I think that just like high school players are not as draftable as we think they are. Uh, like it's like so often, like I, like early in my time scouting, I go see a player and be like, this guy's pretty good. Like I'd take him in the eighth round. Like, then I just like put a report, like put him in the eighth round. Right. And the slot in the eighth round is what, like 200 K or $175,000 or so. And then I'd go scout him again and scout him again and have a good process with him. And then like draft time comes and he wants $1.2 million or he's going to school. And so like that, the, to elevate that player in a process to even be considered like for, for what's happening at the very top of the draft, he's, he's got to be a bona fide slam dunk to get considered up there almost, you know? Um, So I I think that's high school getting drafted out of high school is really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think it's, it's not because teams don't believe in you or believe in the player. Like it's, it's because it's, the money so mismatch, much. basically. It's the signability factor you're talking about, right? I think that's probably yeah. the that that seems to be like the biggest disconnect, just in terms of like how we're lining up the board on baseball America's side versus how teams have to, because we don't have to factor in the signability at all on our side. We're just trying to line up guys by talent. But when you're using uh yeah. feedback from scouts to line up the talent scouts have to factor in that financial component because if you like a player in a certain range and he's just not draftable there, like he's just said, like, no, I, I value my scholarship at whatever college more than the money that, that you would sign me for. Like you have to, you have to have a solution for that on your draft board. And so I think even if we have the most accurate board possible, there should probably always be a disconnect in terms of the amount of high school players we rank versus the amount of high school players who actually get get signed in, in this current draft format, right? I think it's only like 90-something high school players who actually get drafted and signed mm-hmm. um, now in this like 20-round format. And yeah, I mean, even just for us, it creates somewhat of a challenge where you'll be talking to scouts, you know, an area scout or whoever, and they'll say about a college guy, oh yeah, he's, you know, f- you know fifth to seventh round kind of guy. And then there might be a high school player who's committed to Stanford who, you know, they won't say the same kind of round range on him just because, you know, they just know this guy is so intent on going to college and going to school, but wait, actually we should have, you know, just since we're lining up purely on talent, that high school pitcher who's almost dead set on going to school should be higher Mm -hmm. than that college guy. Who's probably just more likely to actually get drafted and, and sign. Yeah, I think with the the high school versus college thing too, what happens is like the the high school player doesn't get seen as much by virtue of the scheduling, right? And how like coordinating everybody and how it makes sense to like you're gonna go see Georgia versus Alabama, uh, Georgia Tech versus Virginia Tech, right? Um, if you're going, if someone's going to see the catcher at Georgia Tech, then they're going to see four draftable players on the the other team, right? Like just generally, right? So you're going to end up in those those environments where you create just more reports are created that day on the college players. Like then they'll go to a high school game and see one guy, right? So you end up generally with situations where there's like, all right, who would you take? There's 
one guy, one scout who says that there's like this high school player they found is Babe Ruth. They, he's got Babe Ruth as his comp or her comp. Uh, and then there's five scouts and three analysts that say this guy is Daniel Descalso. Like good player, really good player. Not like probably going to be remembered in a hundred years, but like good player, right? Who do you who are you going to take? Like me, Babe Ruth, because I'm not the one putting the money on it. <laughs> okay, okay, but now here's the thing: we're in the sixth round, right? Like we're in the sixth round. You can't sign that kid that's Babe Ruth. You yep. think Babe Ruth, right? But also, you can't like have enough comfort to take him where you got to sign him anyway. So like you're just going to keep halfway through the season, like instead of going to see Babe Ruth more, you're going to just like go get another look in at Daniel Descalso. Like, because your process is oriented for that player to be in a signable spot. So I think that the, that yes, the dollar amount of like how much high school players want. Right. And and also like the, this NIL world we live in, it's like the bottom of the barrel signing bonuses that these kids are getting would get out of high school. It, it really like in a lot of their situations, like it doesn't make a ton of sense for them to take that. Right. Um, so it, it just kind of creates this self-fulfilling prophecy almost of like the draft becomes more college heavy, becomes more college heavy because it's more college heavy. Like, so we'll go watch more players who are in college. Like, so it's uh it really has trended that way. And I think like the high school players, like, it's, it's kind of more towards like where the NBA used to be, like where like high school players like had such a it's different now because we do have some real freaks, guys who are just like freakish coming out of high school. Maybe we always have. Maybe it's not different. Um, but there are players who are just able to. The NBA's old model, right, is that there there was like a pretty high risk factor on those high school players. Right. Of, of whether they become productive players of any kind, right? So that creates like this this inherent risk in them. But then they have this boomer bust mentality of like this guy might be your best player. Um, I think we're more trending towards like fewer and fewer high school players long term. The ones that go will be even more elite, I think, long term, right? Because it's the college players are also developing at such a high rate, and they're. Like they're really, really good too. So I don't know. I think that's, yeah, it's very hard to get signed out of high school and it doesn't mean that you're not a prospect. Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah. Well said. Um, uh, Hudson, one of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is the fact that like, I think scouting in general is very romanticized currently in our world. Obviously like it sounds awesome to be watching baseball constantly uh, for your job and, and to be paid to watch baseball games. Um, but you lived that life. So, you know, like what it actually is like, are, are there any things that might surprise listeners about scouting? Cause I know there are probably a ton of people who listen and, and think scouting would be awesome, but, but there are pros and cons to any job. Is there anything that surprised you about the job itself? I, when, when I'm asking you this, I'm reminded of a story you told me, I think there was a, a podcast you used to listen to where you asked about scouting and, and the response you got was very much like, well, why do you want to scout? You have to like, go like eat McDonald's at uh like 12 PM and file your report and you never see your family. So like, I guess give us some cold water on scouting if there's any that, that you need to give. Um, Cause I don't want to yeah. overly romanticize it. Yeah. Well also there's like, you know, if you just think about it 
like for me in a lot of ways, like working at BA was a dream, right? Or working as a scout for a pro team was a dream, right? And and then you achieve your dream, right? And then you're there, right? So like that that's still your it's like a like an athlete trying to think about winning the World Series. Like you won the World Series. Okay. Now what? You know? So I think that it's long term, like the the lifestyle for for me is like something that you have to it's not only about loving it like you have to be able to like manage it and really like have a family system in place and that's the, like the other part too of like players right and makeup like this relate a related point but i promise i've gone on a bunch of tangents but um the support system around a player it's not just like whether they have drive and they're a good person and they're smart and they can figure out how to get better and they can understand what coaches are telling them and they're athletic right they also like need to have a support system behind them to, you know, they have to have parents who check up on them, like our coach that checks up on them or family that gets them to practice or uh, pays for them to play travel ball or, you know, get the equipment that they need. So that, that said, I think that there's a lot of people in scouting who they lose so much time with their families. And I think that, um, on the other side of it, people who try to like promote their players to scouts, right. And tell, you know, kind of for lack of a better term, bother scouts to be higher on their players. Like you really have to understand like that when they go dig for a player, right. When they go to, to take a day out of their schedule, right. They are, they are giving you the time that they would otherwise give their family. Right. So if they don't dig, dig you, or if they can't get their team on board for you, just say thank you for their time. Like, I think that there's like this scout come, came out and didn't want me. And this guy didn't want me. And, you know, like, no, it's like that these scouts are all people like, just like the players are the scouts are people. Um, it, it, it to throw hot water on the lifestyle. Like, yeah. Like when I was 22 years old or 23 years old, like you told me like, yeah, you're going to go watch baseball every day and stay in a decent hotel and, like they give you money for your food and yeah, all you got to do is watch baseball and write down what you see. Cool. Like, I think that when you start thinking about managing a lifestyle and thinking about a family and, you know, a sustainable, like just even pattern of like going through each day, uh, then it's difficult. Right. Cause you're, you're also like, you wake up and you're, you're on the clock, whether you're home or not, you're, you're on the clock until you go to bed and like, and then you might get a call from somebody on the West coast who's, you know, uh, driving home from a game. Right. And it's late on the, like it's dark in Northern California and they're in the middle of nowhere and they need somebody to talk to. So, um, you know, you always want to be a good teammate be there for people, but also like that has its toll on you, you know? So I think that it's, it was a tremendous experience. I loved scouting. I, I love going and evaluating players, getting to meet f families, getting to understand people. Um, but it isn't as sexy as people think. Uh, you are, you drive a lot. Like your knees are going to start hurting. Your back's going to start hurting. You're going to, you're going to put on bad weight. Like I had a bunch of bad weight. I still have some, but like I put it, I put some of those McDonald's calories on. I'm not going to lie. Um, I haven't done McDonald's in years, thankfully, like, but like, that's, 
that's the thing. Like the, the lifestyle is challenging. It's not for everyone. It's, it really isn't. But also just like if a scout is if anyone's listening to this and a scout comes to your game, like just th- say thank you to them. Like that, like it is really oftentimes it is, you know, you're just kind of moving. It is a thankless job. Um, you know, but take, say thank you to those people because they don't have to be there. No matter who you are, they don't have to be there. They can, they can find somebody else to go see. So, yeah. Thank you for coming on our podcast, Hudson. And this is also why I never talk to Ben outside of the podcast. I have to set my boundaries. He's not allowed to call me. Fair enough. <laughs> well, let's talk no, about... Guys. No, go ahead. No, just this was a lot of fun. Like, no, I wanted to... I, I also... before, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about what you're doing now. Um, I don't want to not talk about the agency stuff at all, but you, you now have another dimension to view the game through on the agent side. So what's that been like? Oh, it's fun. It's so much fun. Um, it's, you know, like on the scouting side, I think I mentioned this earlier, like sometimes you get one player in a whole year, like, you know, and that player is kind of like a two, sometimes it's a two or three year process of scouting them, identifying them. Sometimes it's a five year process. Right. So like you get one a year, maybe. Um, and then sometimes you get none, right. Like you go through the whole process and I say you get none, it's a team effort, but it's also, it's just like, it's like none of the players that you're the point person on like ended up on your team. It's it's like, okay. Um, you yeah. know, so um, I do really enjoy the aspect of like, all right, cool. I, I went out and you're, you're my guy now and I'm going to help you. And I, you're with me. Like we're together in this. Like um, I, I think also just like from my side of things in scouting, like so many times I would run into a player where it was like almost too late for them. Right. Where, you know, like had they been kind of mentored and kind of brought through the process a little bit differently, their careers could have played out differently. Um, they could have gotten more opportunities. Um, and then instead they're just kind of a diamond in the rough and sometimes they never get picked up or get an opportunity uh, or they fall out of love with the game, you know, because it doesn't reward them like they think it should. Right. Um, so I really, I love, working with the players and their families. Um, and then, uh, yeah, on the facility and player development side. So yeah, I work for, for a small boutique agency called care sports management. Um, and then opening a, a building in Buford, Georgia and, uh, in May, May, June, uh, and starting a travel organization, uh, called the Georgia sauce. So, um, I think that long-term my vision is, is to create, a player development machine uh, locally for uh, where I'm at and where some of my trusted colleagues and friends are at. Um, And then ultimately to just create a really fun atmosphere for kids, uh, I think, um, on the travel side of things. On the agency side of things, I think it's um, going through it on on the scouting side. Like I saw so many times where players very – they had poor advisement or they just didn't really fully understand the rules or how things operated. Um, or they had expectations that they really had no business having. Um, so I think there's just like, sometimes, yeah, that there's a big part of it. That is the, the final part of figuring out that decision-making process, helping players figure out that decision-making process. Um, but there's so much more in terms of just the personal relationships that you build with these kids and their families. So, um, 
I'm really enjoying all the work that I'm doing. I'm, I'm exactly where I need to be. Yeah. So. On the, on the agency side, I mean, you have experience dealing with agents, both as an area scout. And then obviously before that, when you were writing about the draft for baseball America, how does that experience that you had in, in both of those roles? Cause I'm sure you're speaking with a lot of agents about their players and everybody has a different approach. Some guys are, you know, very candid and brutally honest about their players. And some guys are just completely uh, full of it and seem to have very little or very tenuous grasp of reality. <laughs> um, I will say, at least from my experience, the agents tend to just people in general that you have relationships with tend to be pretty straightforward with you and, and honest about their players. And if they're not, it's like very obvious to me <laughs> that you're not being honest and they probably just don't understand how much it sticks out and how little I, you know, do we, we just don't keep in touch for much after <laughs> that point. So I, I think they understand if they're good at their jobs that it, behooves them to just be straightforward and honest with you because it's going to have benefits for everybody long-term if they are, but um, you know, what kind of, what did you draw from your experience in both roles dealing with agents and kind of how does that change your view of how you approach your job now on the agency side? Yeah. Um, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head and I experienced a lot of that in the, the media side of it too. It's where it's like, like, really, man, like you're telling me that, like, like, I'm not going to call, like, I'm just going to take your word for it and not call five scouts after we get off the phone. Like, and they're like, you're telling me your guy throws 98 and they're going to call a scout. And it's like, yeah, I hit 91. We'd be you know? literally, but we'd like, be literally at the same game sometimes. And then like get a text afterwards. And I'm like, did, did we just watch the same game? <laughs> guy like are you just deranged or do you think i'm dumb like this is not not very bright <laughs> yeah well that's the thing like no no matter what like you can't insult people's intelligence that way too it's like like uh i don't know i think about it in terms of ultimately representing the people i want to work with and like i see a lot of agents who they roll in and like they've got like they're like hey man Let's talk. I've got these 12 guys to tell you about. And it's like, all right, well, by the time you tell me about the eighth one, they all sound the same, right? Like, so like, I know you're trying to run a business and get, you know, 12 players signed and build your organization, but it's like, no, I, I think that. Well, and now I'm just going to, I was just saying now it's just like, you're going to discount the player who actually might be good. Cause if you just tell them you have eight all-stars, <laughs> you're representing well i'm probably just gonna throw everything you just said out out the window yeah and then like it's ultimately it's about building trust and making sure that your clients know you're negotiating in good faith right so if you're super authentic and earnest right and you present things as you believe them right like i believe strongly in my players otherwise i wouldn't have them like i wouldn't try to work with them like and I tell my players too, like, if you're, if you're not happy with what I'm providing for you, fire me, <laughs> like, go ahead. Like there's a ton of, there's a ton of good agents out there, but also like that, that trust part really is important. I think too, like on every front, 
the there are plenty of good agents right now that like as i hop into this like i have no desire to to try to go represent players that are represented by them as i break into this world right because i respect them i know they do a good job by their players that the same at the same point the other side of that there's like there's a lot of guys who are just like not really all that qualified or or that good at at kind of meeting new people and building trust with new people so they kind of have limited networks and they that limits their ability to ultimately help their clients you know um so i i think of it the whole thing comes down to trust because it is so volatile and players can flip agents and agents can decide they're not going to work for a player ultimately or just put less time in for a player if they no longer have a belief in them right so it it comes down to being super super selective uh and that's hard i, I think that's also another thing like inexperienced agents who don't maybe necessarily have a scouting background or understanding of how professional baseball or the draft works they go see somebody who's who hits a ball 500 feet and they're like i want that guy i'm his agent now and i'm going to try to sell that guy and then they find another kid who does the same thing and it's they don't have the ability to properly value what assets they're managing. Essentially, if, if you think about it in terms of real estate, like if I go roll up on a, you know, like a beat up ranch, right, in a bad part of town, and I tell you this is a $10 million house, like no one's ever going to buy that $10 million house. And some people are going to look you up as the agent and be like, man, that guy's insane. Like, why would he try to sell that? junkie house for 10 million dollars like doesn't make any sense what well, right? i see so, all the time on the international side it, and it could be a good player and and even a good agent too who just you know makes a miscalculation where they'll ask for you know be asking teams for a million dollars for a player and the teams are like well you know we value him at like you know four hundred thousand dollars and we have a budget that we can't go over anymore so we're gonna go you know commit our money to other players and instead of going back to continue to watch that player now that player you know other teams have already committed all their money elsewhere and that player who probably could have got i don't know half a million dollars ends up signing for like you know 50k or, or 20 grand or 10 grand whatever it is uh just because the agent really misread the market for the player and, and Carlos, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it all the time uh, every year in the draft where a player and, or his, uh, his representation is putting out way too big of a number that causes them to slide in the draft where if they had, you know, had more realistic expectations, Oh, like actually he could have got <laughs> what he really wanted, or he could have got a lot more money than he ended up signing for. Yeah. Absolutely. That happens every year. There are players who either slip down boards and land in places where they didn't expect to for money they didn't expect to, or guys who just don't sign at all because they think that they're worth X amount of money. And I, I've heard from some players who who got offered money that it honestly surprised me that it was turned down. Um, and there are, there are cases where that doesn't pay off necessarily. So yeah, it is, it's definitely tricky and it happens every year. I'm, I'm sure. But um, yeah, it's, it's uh I don't know, man. It's sad sometimes too. From the scouting side of it, it's like uh professional baseball is a business, right? And so like it it is wise for like advisors and agents 
you know, to be protective of their clients in that way. But also like, it's, it's, it's just so important for there to be trust established. Like if you're going to go work for someone, right. If someone's recruiting you to go work for them, right. Like you should have a trust, like a, a genuine trust and comfort with the situation you're getting into. And it's the players can't vet these situations. Right. Whereas the, like agents should be vetting these situations. My job is to be out out of field, making relationships, gathering information every day to serve my clients better. Whether I'm at the field watching them or not, like we, we have to understand where the rest of the landscape's at to help self to help our players the best. So that's my mindset on it. But yeah. Well, awesome, Hudson. Uh, best of luck with the new venture um, on, on both the agency side and and the travel ball side. I'm, I'm excited for both to see what you do with them. Uh, thank you again for for coming on the podcast. You're the first non-current baseball American because you'll always be a baseball American uh, in, in some regard to come on the podcast. So thank you for for joining us. This has cool. been a, an awesome convo. So much fun. I uh, just I, I love how you guys think about the game, how you guys talk about it. I think that also like I wish that in my time at BA, I would have had just more kind of earnest conversations through the podcasts that I did instead of just kind of feeling like it needed to be structured or scripted or performed. Right. So I, I really appreciate what you guys do. Um, yeah. Now rank my players higher, please. <laughs> there you Is go, that, uh, do you get the, did you get the special, do you now get the stalker agent gun that they make that where every player's velo is two three miles an hour higher automatically no all you got to do is you just do like one of these where you hold it and yeah. i don't know if you guys Hudson is shoving the gun forward on camera right now for yeah. audio listeners <laughs> yeah no this is this is great audio you just do this <laughs> you, you basically know like uh, a guy um a guy showed me this like one day when it was like my first year scouting i was at georgia tech it was like a tuesday night there was a kid that came in. He was probably throwing like 92. And we're sitting – there's three scouts there, myself being one of them. Um, two of us are sitting back, and this guy showed me how to do this, where you literally, like, as the ball's coming out of the hand, you, like, literally jerk the radar gun in the direction of the ball. And you'll get – sometimes it'll just, like, spit out a couple higher numbers. And then, like, so the scout sitting in front of us, we're like, we, like, we're like man, did you get a seven on that? Like – and then he's like sitting there like, what? Like, this is just another stock reliever that's like no breaking ball, just like 89, 92, like it's fine. And then we did it again and like show him the gun, like turn it around, like another one, like, oh my goodness, 102? And then he's like, <laughs> he gets it at that point. Or but now, are, now like, I'm going to have to see a lot more people who are doing that with their guns in person, Hudson. So <laughs> thank you for sharing. <laughs> oh yeah, Twitter's about to be bad. Like oh, you're man. gonna see like a we lot of hundred mile an hour fastball. <laughs> yeah, let's, this is a PSA for internet scouts. Oh god. <laughs> well, again, Hudson, this was awesome. This is a, a really fun conversation for us. Hopefully, the listeners uh, enjoyed it as well. I'm, I'm sure they did. But really, thank you for coming on. Um, and yeah, look, looking forward to running into you at a field at some point. Yeah, let's do it. Hopefully, I'll see you soon. You never know. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Hudson. And just to close out here, thanks again to Hudson for coming on the show. We really appreciate his time. Um, it was a blast to catch up with him, talk about baseball, talk about the game. Hope you guys enjoyed that as well. If you like these sort of 
interviews with people inside the industry definitely let us know. I think it's something that we want to try and do more of in the future, just because like me and Ben said on the podcast, uh, we really love having these conversations with people in the game. It's it's one of the best parts about the job. And I think there's a lot of insight that can be provided to you guys that doesn't necessarily come from um, certainly myself and and Ben. Um, so it was fun to do. Again, let us know what you think about the style. If there's any particular roles in the game you would like to hear from on the podcast, let us know. Ben's at Ben Badler on Twitter. I'm at Carlos A. Colazzo. You can also uh, email us at futureprojection at baseballamerica.com or the Future Projection Twitter account. That's Future Pro Pod on Twitter. A lot of areas where you can give us feedback. Again, thank you guys for listening to the whole show. If you have not rated and reviewed the show, uh, we would love it if, if you take some time to do that. If you feel so inclined, that certainly helps out um, the podcast just on the, the various algorithms, gets it to more people who maybe would enjoy it. So we would appreciate any and all feedback on the podcast. Questions, keep those coming. We'll be back to a, a more standard mailbag segment probably next week um but that's about it for today again thank you hudson for taking the time um thank you guys for listening and we will see you next time